Um, it's great to see all of you here. I hope you are super excited for this lecture. Um, I'm going to introduce our speaker today, uh, Dr. Jim Bell, who is currently a professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at the Arizona State University and adjunct professor in the Department of Astronomy at Cornell. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Planetary Science and Aeronautics from Caltech. Yeah. <laughs> um, and his Master's of Science and PhD in Geology and Geophysics from the University of Hawaii. He also spent three years as a National Research Council postdoctoral research fellow at NASA Ames. His research group primarily focuses on the geology, geochemistry, and mineralogy of planets, moons, asteroids, and comets using data that they obtained from telescopes and other spacecraft missions. Um, he is also the president of Planetary Society and author of many space-related books, most recently The Interstellar Age regarding the Voyager missions, which he's here to discuss with us today. Um, he has a main uh, belt asteroid named after him, and very exciting, he was the recipient of the 2011 Carl Sagan Medal for, from the American Astronomical Society for Excellence in Public Communication in Planetary Science, so it's really exciting to have him give this talk today. Please welcome our speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Kiss, uh, for the invitation to come and, and, and talk today. I'm freaked out on a variety of levels. Uh, on one level, I'm freaked out because uh, I used to take classes in this room. <laughs> what am I doing over here? Another level, I'm freaked out because I'm giving a Voyager talk with Ed Stone sitting in the front row. <laughs> Be nice. Be nice. Okay? Calm down. All right. <laughs> so this is, um, it's a lot of fun to, to be uh, talking about this, uh, about this project, about, about um, my involvement with Voyager. And it's kind of the, the book, talk, book talk version of the book. Uh, and uh, and it's, very, it's a little bit autobiographical because Voyager is how I got my start. So, so uh, as a student, as a student here, actually. And so I'll talk about that um, uh, a bit. And, uh, and some of the history of the mission and uh, some of the, um, the activities that I had the, the privilege of being a part of. Um, you know, you can make one of these, uh, what's it called, a word, word chart? Cloud. What's it called? Word cloud. Word cloud, thank you, yeah, word cloud. So <clears throat> I took all the text from the book and I put it into the word cloud. And it's, you know, really interesting the kind of things that pop out. Look, uh, oops, here, here's Ed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a talk about, vo it's a, a Voyager, it's spacecraft, it's systems, it's planets, uh, you know, it's JPL, right? It's uh, other worlds, interstellar, talk about that. All the major planets are up here. It's time, uh, water planetary years, science, right? So many aspects of, uh, of this mission uh, touch so many parts of the professional work that, that I now get to do, as many in the room get to do, as well as just the, uh, the public perception of science and the, you know, the successes in the, in the nation's uh, space program. I wanted to just read, uh, since it's kind of a booky talk, I wanted to read a part, if I could have the lights back up here for a moment. Thank you, uh, just read a little bit from a couple of pages from the beginning to kind of set the stage. <clears throat> Physics tells us that all things attract each other gravitationally from planets to petunias to pulsars, even if those forces are sometimes too small to notice in everyday life. 
But if you look closely at the trajectories that your life has taken, you may notice the results of similar gravitational effects from the people you have known. Sometimes people around us cause massive swings in direction and speed that can propel us on toward new and undiscovered territory and experiences. That's what happened with me and the space exploration mission known as Voyager. The trajectory of my life has been guided by the slow, gentle, persistent gravitational pull of two elegant robotic spacecraft and the teams of people, scientists, engineers, mentors, students, who made their mission of exploration so marvelously compelling. Taking advantage of a rare, rare celestial alignment of the planets, those two robots, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, gave us all our first detailed, high-resolution, glorious views of the solar system beyond Mars, revealing the giant planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune and their panoply of rings and moons in all their awesome wonder, not just for scientists, but also for poets, musicians, painters, novelists, movie makers, historians, and even kids. I happen to have been born at a time that placed me in college and graduate school right when the fruits of that fortuitous celestial alignment were ripening. By a random turn of a corner in a building, actually a building right around the corner here, uh, while walking back from class, I spotted a flyer from a professor who was looking for student research help. I soon found myself involved in the missions of these extraordinary projections of human technology, something I had dreamed of since I could barely read. I felt as if I had been cast out into deep space myself, seeing my life and my world from a completely new perspective. In one seemingly chance Forrest Gump-like encounter after another, uh, the arc of my life has been shaped by the Voyager missions. Even to this day, I find myself drawn to their power to lift the human spirit. Just think of these sophisticated creations, mere machines yet projections of ourselves launched into my hero Carl Sagan's shallow depths of the cosmic ocean. <laughs> Representing the integrated abilities, hopes, dreams, and fears of the more than 100 billion people who have lived on planet Earth and who, like me, have wondered, are we alone? What else is out there? What is our destiny? These voyagers, and by that I mean the people as well as the machines, have taken us all on a tour of the greatest hits of the solar system, and we've all been privileged passengers carried along for the ride. Along the way, I went from a starry-eyed kid interested in astronomy and planetary science to a student learning the ropes from some of the greatest masters in the field to now a practitioner of the art myself with students of my own. It has been an adventure filled with astounding beauty, discovering new worlds so exotic that their alien landscapes were entirely unanticipated, facing unprecedented challenges, meeting and then saying goodbye to new friends and colleagues. And now the voyagers are leaving the protective bubble of our sun and crossing over into the uncharted territory between the stars. They and we, through them, are now interstellar travelers. Via their technology, their discoveries, and the messages that they're delivering to the galaxy on our behalf, we have all entered the interstellar age. This may be the ultimate legacy of the men and women and machines of Voyager. As we learn and grow as a species, as we begin to grasp the fragility of our existence and the fleeting nature of habitable environments in our solar system, we must adapt and move on. In the long run, the very long run, we will have to leave our sun's cradle and move out into the stars. The interstellar age 
is the inevitable future of humankind, and the voyagers are our first baby steps along that path. That's how I kind of start this uh, book, it's, which is a very, very personal story uh, from a, a mission that, uh, that helped me get my start in the field. Let's get the lights back down again. So uh, can we turn these lights off again, please? Thanks. So you've all seen this uh, chart, of course, the, the grand tour going from the Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and then uh, beyond. Uh, Voyager was the first to take advantage of this. It's interesting, and I, I talk about this in the book, and uh, Ed can wax on a lot about it, that uh, the mission actually was not to do the grand tour, right? The mission was to go to Jupiter and Saturn and Titan. And I tried to press Ed on this in the book, and he wouldn't come off the fence, but I said, you know, if, if Voyager 1 had not been successful at Jupiter, Saturn, Titan, would the grand tour of Uranus and Neptune have been abandoned so Voyager 2 could do the same, get Titan in the book? And he said, I think so. But I wonder, you know, go back in time, reproduce a parallel path of history, and you, you wonder if that would have happened. So Uranus and Neptune were, were bonuses on top of the primary mission, which was to get to Jupiter, Saturn, and, and Titan. You know, we talk a lot about uh, selfies, and Curiosity, of course, is taking selfies on Mars, and, but there's a rich tradition of selfies that goes back to uh, the, the 60s and 70s, and Voyager was uh, among the earliest of missions to take a, a selfie of the Earth and the Moon, and it's part of the, the heritage that started with uh, Apollo 8, Apollo 17, right? Those missions looking back for the first time at our own planet as a as Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. And, but you don't often see these, these beautiful shots of, uh, of the Earth and the Moon in the same uh, field of view with relative colors and, and brightnesses. So that was a, a really great and auspicious and meaningful start to the mission. Of course, getting to uh, Jupiter and the Jupiter system uh, and, and flying two spacecraft through that system on these trajectories with lots of constraints uh, was the job of the navigation team, and I had the opportunity to talk extensively with uh, Charlie Colhays, who was um, uh, the leader of that team. Uh, they're very, very proud of what they did, and remember, they were designing these trajectories in the mid-1970s. They didn't have supercomputers. They had punch cards. You know, it was old school, right? <laughs> and they were writing things out on, on hand. They were working with slide rules, and uh, you know, they had to get very close to Jupiter, and they had to get on a trajectory that would swing both spacecraft onto Saturn. Uh, they had to be on a trajectory, and then they had to, so they had sort of this major engineering constraint, get from Jupiter to Saturn, use the gravity assist. But then they had these other pesky scientific constraints, right? Like the scientists wanted to get close to the, the large Galilean satellites, the large moons. And then the scientists even wanted to get behind the planet as seen from the Earth and the Sun and do a solar occultation through the, uh, the atmosphere of Jupiter relative to the spacecraft and do, to, do a radio occultation through the, the atmosphere of the spacecraft, uh, of, of Jupiter relative to the spacecraft. Uh, and so they had, uh, he described it as, uh, you know, trying to thread 10,000 needles through uh, haystacks that are really hard to find the needles, but you gotta, you gotta get it done and he was really proud and, and to this day uh, believes that they found the two best needles in that haystack. 
uh, and uh, really is kind of amazing what they did to, to, to make that happen. So very quickly, uh, uh, Voyager helped Jupiter go from you know, an object that, where we could see the zones and belts and great red spot uh, through ground-based telescopes. And they've been imaged, not great, but sort of okay by, by Pioneer spacecraft uh, just the previous year. Uh, but it took getting closer uh, to have the grandeur of this place really turned into uh, just uh, the, the spectacular view that we got. Uh, you know, the atmospheric motions seen in here, and this is a time lapse from uh, the approach images from the narrow angle, put together uh, 40 years later by amateur image processing experts who take the raw data and process them and meld the time lapse. Uh, uh, they tween them, it's called tweening take pictures between two time steps. Uh, absolutely uh, phenomenal uh, uh, dynamics and motions in here. And so here's just some uh, mosaics from the Great Red Spot. And this one, one of my favorites. And this one, one of my favorites. And uh, these aren't Van Gogh paintings, right? This is what's really going on. Uh, and I remember, so at this point in my, my life, I was in high school and uh, we were watching the results come in from uh, Voyager 1 and, and then Voyager 2 flying by, by Jupiter. And for the young people in the audience, there were three networks on television plus PBS. Uh, there was you know, no science to speak of on TV except for Nova, which is still around, thank goodness. And, and I was a total space nerd. And Nova was about space only like 20% of the time, right? It's like, oh, you know. Uh, and there was no internet. I know, calm down, okay? <laughs> it's insane. You can't even imagine such a world, right? Uh, so it was, we weren't getting streaming images in real time. You'd have to watch on the nightly news or wait for your issue of Astronomy or Sky and Telescope magazine to show up at the end of the month to see the latest cool stuff. So just eating this stuff uh, up uh, left and right. And of course, the same thing was happening here. Guys like Andy Ingersoll and you know, atmospheric scientists around the world just being blown away by the, by the dynamics and structures that we're seeing in here. It's, uh, this fascination with the red spot continues uh, to this day. Uh, here's uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, earliest pictures taken by NASA's Juno mission of the great red spot. Of course, Juno uh, does these uh, uh, big elliptical dips very close to, uh, to Jupiter. And the cool thing about Juno is that since it has this ability to probe deeply into the subsurface uh, with uh, microwave sounding, we can get the highest resolution pictures and really resolve the detailed structure of the great red spot. <laughs> and it turns out that the white zones are cheese and there's this wonderful meat in here. Thank you for laughing at my joke. <laughs> so before Voyager, you know, Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, points of light. Very little information, uh, certainly not worlds of their own right. We knew quite a bit about Jupiter from telescopes because it's so close and so large relative to the other uh, gas giant planets. Uh, but the satellites are basically, basically unknown. A little bit of spectroscopic data, some photometry, uh, but not really understood as worlds. And of course, one of the biggest revolutions uh, was uh, the discovery of you know, interesting internal activity on Io. Um, uh, some science, planetary science colleagues had predicted that there could be uh, tidal interactions between 
the, that the tidal interactions between Io and the other moons and the gravitational pull of Jupiter could lead to significant internal heating, and they timed their paper to come out the week before the flyby. So a great example of uh, making a prediction. And of course, that, uh, that prediction came true. The original images that the science team got to see were kind of auto-stretched like this and had blemishes like that in it. Uh, and then the NAV team, their job, and this was uh, made famous by Linda Morabito on the NAV team, their job was to stretch the heck out of the images and pull the stars out of the background and the Jupiter-shine-lit limb and make sure that you know, the spacecraft went where it was told to go and figure out exactly what that trajectory was like coming out. And, and so Linda was one of the first people to see that that wasn't a blemish, that was a really bright spot on Jupiter and there, on Io. And then there's this other one in the background, this mushroom-shaped feature, which at first she uh, says thought might have been another moon behind Io, but they knew where the big moons were and that didn't work. And so this was, of course, the first evidence of extensive volcanism on what's turned out to be the most active uh, volcanic world in our solar system. Uh, a planet that uh, has no impact craters on its surface, that is literally ripping itself uh, from the inside out, uh, resurfacing constantly, uh, completely uh, freed, uh, freeing itself of volatiles, uh, very hot, where the temperature here is um, uh, proportional to color because sulfur is so heavily involved and allotropes of sulfur have a strong uh, color dependence with temperature. Uh, so uh, very, very, very surprising and, of course, delightful uh, ac activity that uh, came out. One of the first big discoveries uh, to be made uh, of many in the Voyager mission. Europa similarly did not uh, disappoint uh, a world with extremely few impact craters, especially as compared to Ganymede and Callisto, nearby moons that have very extensive, especially Callisto, impact histories. Um, but extremely smooth. Uh, if you were to scale um, Europa down to a, a bowling ball, the largest topography would be the thickness of a human hair, right? So very, very smooth surface, uh, heavily fractured, uh, very few uh, impact craters, lots of evidence of, of resurfacing. And of course, the uh, Galileo mission went on to uh, study that surface in great detail using Voyager uh, data as a pathfinder. Uh, to figure out the best places to, to image, exposure times, filters for different wavelengths, et cetera, uh, and uh, went on to really confirm, uh, as best we have been able to yet, the hypothesis that there's a, a, a relatively deep subsurface liquid water ocean under this icy shell with salty minerals uh, erupting uh, occasionally through these, uh, uh, through these fractures. Ganymede didn't disappoint either. Uh, more craters, perhaps an older surface as, as uh, assessed by relative uh, crater counting, but also some uh, super interesting kind of racetracky grooved terrains. Uh, evidence uh, since then from uh, Galileo and even telescopic data for uh, really interesting surface chemistry and an internal magnetic field. So it's the only moon that turns out to have its own large scale magnetic field like this and hypothesize that there's a, a deep uh, subsurface liquid water ocean under here as well. So Voyager turned these points of light into true worlds with an interesting and uh, highly relevant, especially to astrobiologists, internal uh, structure. You know, does Europa have a liquid water ocean that could be twice the volume of all the oceans on the Earth? That's the leading hypothesis. That's what the data from Voyager and now 
uh, Galileo uh, uh, point to. And that's the point of the next mission, the Europa Clipper mission, to go there, orbit Jupiter, but do many flybys of Europa, really uh, test that, that, uh, that model in detail through radar, through magnetic field observations, through geologic observations with the imager. Uh, even, uh, you know, ancient Callisto, there's people out there uh, in the planetary science community who believe that that subsurface may be slushy, right? Maybe not an ocean, but there could be liquid water even in, in that, that area. So incredibly interesting and diverse and dynamic places, totally uh, surprising and thrilling at the same time. Next stop, on to Saturn, of course. Uh, Charlie and his team had to thread a, a couple more needles. Uh, and this time, the, uh, the goal for um, this Voyager 1 in the upper left and Voyager 2 in the lower right, the goal was to make sure to do a flyby of, uh, of Titan. And, and um, you know, Ed can fill us in with more, but there are a bunch of, a bunch of folks on the team, including uh, Sagan, who was a, a huge advocate of, of the importance of, of Titan. Uh, no, a moon known to have an atmosphere, hypothesized to be a relatively thick atmosphere, relatively reducing atmosphere, perhaps an environment that uh, could be similar to Earth's early thick reducing atmosphere, and uh, therefore a, a potential laboratory uh, for the study of the, the habitability conditions of early life on our own planet, just orbiting around Titan. So getting close to Titan, critically important. Of course, uh, studying the other moons of Saturn as much as possible and the rings in the atmosphere of Saturn, also very important. But you can see, at least in my opinion, what, what ended up being a relatively conservative approach, right? So the satellites are in the ring plane here, and the rings are, you know, of course, now known to be, you know, millions of billions of house size to dust size particles. Uh, and, uh, uh, the, the trajectory looking sort of ed equatorially here went under the ring plane and then crossed the ring plane at pretty large distances from uh, Saturn itself. So a little bit conservative because, of course, nobody really knew what the, uh, the dust or other dynamic environment was like there. Pioneer 11 had flown through that system, uh, but that's, you know, one data point, and it was kind of just a year or so earlier. So um, they had to make up their mind on how to do it, so they, they chose that approach. Whereas with uh, Voyager 2, uh, I think uh, Charlie and his buddies must have gone out drinking and said, oh, to hell with it, you know. Uh, let's fly right through the ring plane really close uh, to the uh, then known outer uh, rings and, uh, and get very close to uh, a, a lot of the other moons that, um, that they weren't able to get so close to. So between the two, uh, they would get Titan covered as well as Saturn, its rings, its atmosphere, and large moons. And if, in fact, Voyager 1 uh, was successful in doing its Titan encounter, and depending on what uh, was, was found at Titan and whether follow-up was absolutely essential, uh, Voyager 2 could be programmed on to take a really hard 90-degree turn to head on to, to Uranus and Neptune. And, of course, that's one that ended, what ended up happening. Here's a, a composite of the uh, uh, approach movies uh, for Saturn. Uh, the rings are super wide compared to the field of view of the camera, so it took two different pointings uh, to get uh, the left and right hand side of the rings. And you can see some of the dynamics uh, in the atmosphere here, uh, as well as the rotation of the rings as the spacecraft got closer uh, to, the, to the planet. And you know, we talk about perspective, right? This is the kind of perspective that 
the Voyagers gave the world, right? No one had ever seen uh, a view from behind Saturn you know, or underneath the rings or all of the other kinds of views that we could get that uh, were just unprecedented. It's a, a fun little movie uh, that was put together for these structures seen in the rings for the first time called Spokes. Uh, it was clear that there are waves and dynamics and all kinds of interesting physics uh, that have to do not just with ring formation, but with disk formation and evolution in general. And in the same kinds of codes and many of the same people in the rings community are also thinking about planet formation in extrasolar disks. So it's uh, a lot of interesting physics here. Titan turned out to be interesting in a couple of ways, uh, in a kind of a, a photo, not in a, a photogenic way. Uh, it was a bland kind of cue ball place because of the hazes uh, and smogs in that thick atmosphere and that atmosphere unpenetratable to the wavelengths uh, that were available to the Voyager uh, cameras. Uh, nonetheless, uh, some detailed spectroscopy was done uh, of, of Titan, and in fact, uh, a number of interesting and exotic and semi-complex organic molecules discovered in that atmosphere. Uh, it was decided, and again, Ed will tell you the whole detailed back room, smoky back room story, but it was decided that Voyager 2 would not add any new information uh, that Voyager 1 hadn't been able to obtain successfully at, at Titan. And so uh, the, the original Jupiter-Saturn-Titan goal of the mission, check that box, mission success, that freed Voyager 2 to be able to do the grand tour, to take that hard 90-degree turn at Saturn, to, get, uh, uh, to miss Titan by uh, quite, a, quite a, a wide margin, but go on to Uranus and Neptune. Titan itself wouldn't, of course, be studied in much more detail until the Cassini mission, which carried a radar, which could see below that haze, and of course, which has gone on to uh, reveal just an amazingly interesting and exotic world with a, uh, not a water cycle, but a hydrocarbon cycle, and um, you know, rivers and waterfalls of ethane and propane, and I mean, what, a, what a strange and exotic place. Turns out that the physical properties of of the icy bedrock uh, at these temperatures are comparable to the physical properties of rock uh, at Earth's surface temperatures. And the erosive properties of uh, methane and ethane and propane, which are liquids at these temperatures and pressures, are co consistent with the erosive properties of water and rock on the Earth. So you get canyons and valleys and you know just spectacular shorelines and all the things that you've seen. Cassini do to amazing success. So Titan is uh, is a world that still that needs much more explanation, exploration, and explanation, uh, and uh, and is uh, uh, I think even cemented further as a as a great laboratory to understand early uh, prebiotic and early biotic processes even on our own planet. Well, the other moons, of course, encountered also were points of light before Voyager. They became uh, real places with real geology and crater counting and relative age dates and some of them with evidence of, of resurfacing and perhaps uh, you know, among the most exotic of the mid-sized icy moons, of course, was, was Enceladus. Uh, Enceladus was uh, targeted best for Voyager 2's flyby uh, through the ring plane, very close to the planet, uh, was uh, uh, scheduled to do a, a did a close flyby of Otethys and Enceladus and scheduled to do some high-resolution imaging 
on the back side of the planet out of view of the Earth when uh, one of the biggest problems that happened on the mission was the, the scan platform that pointed the cameras and other instruments froze up. Uh, it was ultimately uh, the sleuthing on that determined that it was just being asked to scan at, at too fast of a rate. Uh, it was the coldest temperatures that that platform had ever been exposed to, that far from the sun, in the eclipse uh, behind Saturn. So perhaps the lubricant froze up or whatever. A workaround was figured out, but they lost the closest approach pictures of Enceladus and, uh, and Tethys. So, um, you know, one wonders uh, what would have been seen, and maybe it wouldn't have been another 20 years until Cassini found the amazing water and organic rich plumes coming out of the South Pole of this little moon. Little moon, I mean like Chicago to Boston, little. Little moon, what the heck is all this geologic activity doing there? There's some tidal heating, maybe there's some radiogenic heating from uh, rocky interior. Um, it's still somewhat of a mystery, uh, but there seems to be evidence that uh, there is a subsurface liquid water <coughs> Uh, just under the surface in this tiny moon, and not just inaccessibly under the surface like Europa's, but streaming out of cracks, fractures, uh, out into space. Cassini spacecraft was actually flown through a couple of these and made some direct mass spectrometry measurements to detect organics in there. Again, Voyager set the stage for that, but I you know, just have to wonder in the back of my mind, boy, we, how would we have changed Cassini if we'd known 20 years earlier? that uh, Enceladus would be so interesting, I'm not sure. I wanted to show just a couple of pictures of people uh, because uh, a lot of this is all about uh, the people and, and uh, some of you may remember G. Edward Danielson over here. Ed was, uh, was a, a member of the professional staff at JPL. He was also here on campus and he's the guy that, that hired young punk undergrad me. Uh, <laughs> to do some work and uh, I, it was so much fun. I was in South Mud and I got to use the image processing workstation, right? The, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and you recognize, some of you probably recognize Carl Sagan and, and Toby Owen and, and Larry Soderblom who uh, many of us in planetary science work with today. And this is one of my favorite press pictures. Here's Larry holding forth with the media, <laughs> right? And, uh, and just look at, they're just like hanging on his every word. Ed, you probably don't get that kind of media love anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, just, and it was great to have that, that this, this was the cadre of, of science reporters and journalists who were getting the word out and, and getting it onto the, the nightly news and all that kind of stuff. So on to Uranus goes, um, goes Voyager 2. Whoa. I didn't know that soundtrack. Very dynamic. Um, this bullseye ride through the, through the Uranus system. And, uh, you know, and after the, the amazing uh, uh, atmospheric diversity in Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus was a bit of a disappointment. Although since, <laughs> since been discovered or, or determined that, you know, this, was the, this is the time in the Uranus year when it's hazy, right? So maybe not surprising. Like Titan, like at Titan, Voyager's cameras couldn't penetrate that haze very well. Small numbers of cloud features seen and, and folks got what they could out of it. But since then, in the Hubble Space Telescope, we've seen all kinds of structure going on, clouds and other uh, uh, belt-like and zone-like systems in the atmosphere of Uranus. So it was a bit of a disappointment for the atmospheric scientists, but the system wasn't, certainly wasn't a disappointment. Voyager discovered rings by looking back into the sun. So like anybody who's driven into the sun and you, all the 
crack on your windshield lights up, right? It's the same kind of thing. You look back towards the sun and very fine particles of Uranus's very dark, dusty rings lit, that, uh, lit up the, the pictures. And the moons turned, had turned out to be just also incredibly uh, interesting, small, mid-sized moons, icy worlds, uh, Ariel exhibiting uh, significant uh, tectonics. But really the star of the show, another very small 250 kilometer object, uh, Miranda, which had been discovered only a, a few decades earlier by uh, Kuiper. Very small moon, uh, which looks, at least in the Voyager data, as if it was taken apart like a three-dimensional, one of those three-dimensional wooden puzzles, and you flip the pieces around and cram them all back together. Uh, maybe it was uh, the victim of a giant impact, but a gentle one that just kind of moved everything apart and then everything came back together. Or there's some exotic uh, internal processes going on in this small moon that we just have no understanding of at all. It's probably going to be a while before we go back, but, but Voyager has set the stage for uh, at least knowing that there are super interesting puzzles in the, uh, the Uranus system. Uh, you know, it, it turns out that uh, Voyager was not the first flyby of Uranus, uh, uh, it, or, or Neptune, actually. Uranus and Neptune did a flyby of each other in the early 19th century, 1810, 1821, 1830, shown here. And this is actually how Neptune was discovered. Neptune discovered telescopically, of course, because it happened to, uh, Uranus happened to pass by Neptune and just the slightest gravitational wiggle, the slightest perturbation monitored by uh, astronomers, mathematicians get this information in, predicting the existence uh, of another planet out beyond, uh, uh, beyond Uranus. The search begins and several teams actually find uh, Neptune not long thereafter. Uh, so uh, again, sort of lucky timing on there and that, that those worlds encountered each other, which they don't do but every, you know, 100-ish and change years, right around the time when the telescope technology was good enough to track uh, the orbit of Uranus to an accuracy required by the mathematicians to predict the presence of another mass out there that was perturbing that planet. The flyby of Neptune uh, in uh, 89. So the Uranus flyby was the first one that I was involved with working with Ed Danielson uh, as an undergraduate here, uh, and, uh, and then as a graduate student, uh, I got involved with, uh, uh, with uh, working with some Uranus data and getting to experience the encounter uh, at, at JPL. And again, this was the time when stuff wasn't going on on the internet, there was no internet. If you wanted to see Neptune go from a point of light to a world with an interesting dynamic atmosphere and amazing cool satellites, you had to be there. You had to figure out how to get into that room, and that was the, the amazingly cool thing that, uh, that my experience as a student here and in graduate school after that uh, allowed me to do. So Neptune, uh, still surprisingly with a much more dynamic atmosphere than Uranus, even though much farther from the sun, much lower so solar heating. There's internal energy in that system that's still not fully uh, understood. And then, uh, of course, the a big deal with uh, Triton, it's large retrograde moving moon, probably a captured Kuiper Belt object. Um, it was a lot of predictions that Pluto would end up looking a lot like Triton. Uh, and I think a lot of that actually came true. Interesting geology, surface uh, flows, resurfacing, uh, tectonism, and uh, cryovulcanism going on on this world. And, uh, Larry Soderblom was one of the members of the team who first spotted the active geysers uh, on Triton coming out of uh, 
of, of the, uh, the subsurface. So a really interesting world that we got a super fast glimpse of uh, back in uh, the late 1980s. Again, beckoning, uh, we have to go back there and figure out what's really going on at Triton. Same kind of thing happened with Pluto and Charon, of course, and a couple of years ago. Very, very fast encounter, first glimpse, you start drooling, we have to figure out how to get back. Right? So Voyager wasn't quite done uh, with, uh, with its work until um, uh, both missions had passed their final object, and then there was a sort of a mini campaign among the, the team and, and some uh, in the public, including the Planetary Society, to uh, use the spacecraft to, uh, to take a family portrait. And so the last sort of formal thing that the imaging team uh, sequenced up, and uh, people like uh, Candy Hansen and others, who many of you know, uh, worked on this, was this, uh, this portrait of the solar system, knowing what the viewpoint was and where the planets would be, and pointing uh, towards uh, each one of them to take uh, uh, individual portraits. I think you know uh, Venus and Mercury and even Mars were just too close to the glare of the sun, but all the rest of them were, were able to be viewed, including, of course, our pale blue dot. And this was, uh, went on to become uh, famous um, uh, in the, uh, the eloquent, uh, eloquent writing and uh, Cosmos and other TV shows by, by Carl Sagan that, you know, everything, everything we've known is all right here, a pale um, moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, right? I mean, absolutely spectacular. The real fun part of the book for me uh, and the work, the research for the book uh, for me was, was beyond that though, and learning a lot from interviews with Ed and, and others uh, about Voyager's interstellar mission and what is this bubble around, you know, what is the heliosphere, where, where is it, you know? And, uh, and you know, before Voyager, people didn't really know, you know, knew which direction the sun is moving relative to the stars inferred there to be a, a shock, a bow shock, a shock wave front, a long tail uh, in the downstream direction. But where was this interaction where uh, the sun's uh, solar wind influence ends and you get into interstellar space? Was it just, just beyond uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune? Are they outside of it, inside of it? What was the field like? Where, when and where would, would either of the Voyagers encounter uh, that uh, boundary? So, the, the beauty of being a plutonium nuclear-powered mission is that they knew that they'd have decades to continue on. Um, I still find it uh, absolutely stunning that Ed got away with building an instrument that had one part of it that would only do its job if they got out here. <laughs> You'd never get a proposal like that funded today. Uh, very, very thoughtful, very prescient. Um, so, you know, Voyager 1 has popped out uh, in uh, 2012. When it, Voyager 2 has not popped out yet. If you go to the, uh, the website, and Ed's and his uh, team are probably responsible for, for updating these, these uh, charts showing the sort of the outside cosmic rays outside the solar system versus inside based on their energy, energetics. And Voyager 1 clearly dominated by uh, external uh, energy outside of the sun's heliosphere. But Voyager 2 is still dominated by uh, signal from uh, within, the, uh, within the solar system as defined this way. Of course, this doesn't gravitationally define the solar system. That goes out you know, a third of the way, half of the way to the nearest star with the Oort cloud. But it is one definition of leaving the solar system, and it certainly is one that the, the press and the public latched onto by sort of uh, when the spacecraft sort of 
almost tumbled out uh, on one day, one day, boom, boom, off. We're out of the heliosphere. Pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. And we're expecting Voyager 2 to do that anytime. Any news? Nothing new, Ed? Not, not today. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't today. Um, so uh, there's this cool website that you can go to uh, that shows you the positions of all five spacecraft that are on helio escape trajectories. And New Horizons, the newest one that uh, went out to, uh, to Pluto and will encounter another Kuiper Belt object at the, at the end of this year, on uh, New Year's Day 2019, in fact. Uh, and it's kind of cool to see how far they are. Voyager 1, 140 AU. Voyager 2, 100, almost 120 uh, AU. And the fastest of them relative to the sun, Voyager 1 going at about 17 uh, kilometers per second. That's more than 10 miles per second. So, um, you know, imagine that thing flying through your neighborhood. <laughs> 10 miles per second, uh, just uh, phenomenally uh, fast. Um, and of course, they're in, uh, they're in escape trajectories away from the sun, but they're not going to escape the Milky Way. So they will be co-orbiting uh, with the sun around the Milky Way. I like this uh, painting by John Lomberg. And what is their mission going to become? Well, just like um, the pioneers, pioneers carried a plaque, uh, which had some controversy associated with it as you know, perhaps the first uh, interstellar uh, pornography. Um, uh, carried a plaque and a message and of of course, so did the Voyagers. The Voyagers carrying these golden records uh, put together rather hastily uh, by uh, uh, Sagan, Lomberg, and, and a small committee of, uh, of others with a collection of uh, photographs and music encoded onto a, um, I know the young people won't understand this, but a piece of vinyl <laughs> with this like groove in it, right? And you'd stick a, a stylus in there, and the, the, the stylus would vibrate, and that would uh, turn the groove into a sound. And uh, um, pretty uh, daunting task. How do you represent the entire entirety of Earth uh, in um, you know a couple of hours of, of music and the equivalent uh, a couple, hundred or so uh, images? It turned out to be uh, kind of interesting. Here's the music that's represented. So Bach, uh, this one's one of my favorites from Bulgaria. And of course, a little bit of rock and roll. Very shortly after it was revealed that Chuck Berry was going out into space, there was a Saturday Night Live skit that I remember watching. <laughs> right, so very, very quickly getting into the pop culture. Um, I was hoping that Voyager would take advantage of its disco roots and kind of, you know, we'd see more disco on their record because, you know, this is. Again, I was uh, high school, and uh, um, Michelle, just for you, I put my high school um, yearbook photo in here so you'd see. <laughs> um, had a bunch of slides about, um, uh, about the details of, of the, um, the record, but instead, let me just show um, 
and I'll just show you the pictures and you can see if you think that this represents uh, our planet. Last uh, few is is actually that Beethoven uh, quartet, violin quartet that we're hearing. I think I think they did a, a really good job, actually. It's you know it's a daunting task, right? And they decided intentionally not to put like mushroom clouds and pictures of war and all that, but to put the best foot forward uh, for humanity at least as of the the mid 1970s. Um, I had another. I'm not going to do another reading. Um, Fun, fun picture, you go see the full-scale model of Voyager in the Visitor Center at JPL. Of course, it's a fun thing to do. If, uh, if you want to read more about the Golden Record, that book, Murmurs of Earth, uh, by Sagan and colleagues, provides all kinds of amazing details of how, in just six weeks, they pulled that project together uh, to put those songs and pictures uh, on, that, uh, on the spacecraft. And I think it was visionary, and I'm really glad it didn't get you know, killed by NASA headquarters or something like that. Uh, and then I uh, strongly recommend, if, if you haven't seen this uh, amazing documentary uh, put together by uh, Emir Reynolds, Irish uh, film director and Irish film agency, 
Uh, there's a PBS version online, and there's a full theatrical version that's a little bit longer and I think more artistic. But uh, Ed and I were talking about it earlier at the reception. Uh, it really captures a lot of the emotion. Uh, the music is great. The CG is great. You ride over the spacecraft's shoulder, over the clouds of Neptune. I mean, just <coughs> I thought it was great. And there's some disco in it, so I thought that was great, too. Uh, it's really been an amazing adventure. Uh, I got my start uh, on, uh, on Voyager as an undergrad here, just given an amazing opportunity by uh, some incredible faculty members who went on to become uh, mentors. And uh, I'm just uh, incredibly grateful uh, for the ability to have been involved with that and to con continue to make uh, contributions to planetary science, including with some of the members of the Voyager team, which is uh, just really, really thrilling. So. That's my, uh, that's my story, I'm sticking with it, thank you. <laughs>